Today's sermon comes from Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. About five years ago, in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine, the richest man in the world at the time, Bill Gates, was asked the question, do you believe in God? And he spoke about how science has given some explanation to disease and to the weather, but he said science can't explain everything. And then he shared this very intriguing comment. He said, the mystery and the beauty of the world is so overwhelmingly amazing, and there's no scientific explanation of how it came about. To say that it was generated by random numbers, that does seem, you know, sort of an uncharitable view. And he laughed when he said that. I think it makes sense to believe in God, but exactly what decision in your life you make differently because of it, I don't know. Let me just paraphrase what Bill Gates said there. He said, I can believe that God created the world, but I have no idea how that should impact my life. We talk about creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and oftentimes we say God created and we stop there. Or we talk about Genesis 1 and 2 and use it as ammunition against evolution. But Genesis 1 and 2, and specifically these first three verses of Genesis 1, beg the question, how does God's creation of the world impact my life? What are the implications of it? What I want you to see is how God's creation of the world actually produces surprising hope. How does it produce surprising hope? First, God created out of nothing. Look at verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that, that verb, create there in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a verb that in other parts of the Old Testament is only attached to God as the subject. In other words, it's a verb that describes divine activity, that God did this alone, with no help, on his own. And the phrase, in the beginning, speaks even further to, to the origin or to the starting point of our world. That's what in the beginning is, is pointing to, is origin. And what we see here is that the origin spoken of here in Genesis 1 is very different than many of the religions of the day of the ancient Near World. The ancient Near East was oftentimes spoken of in other religions of gods who were at war with each other in the very beginning. That most other religions at the starting point have gods that are at war and, and, and the gods eventually subdue and exercise their power over chaos and darkness. So in other words, the origin or the starting point is a struggle. And yet here we see there's no struggle. There's no battle between good and evil. It's just God. Just God creating. 
Hebrews 11.3 says this, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created out of nothing, which is very different than how human beings create. Right? Human beings create out of something. Think about an artist. She has a paintbrush, she has paint, she has a canvas and makes a beautiful masterpiece. Or he has a, a, a block of clay and a potter's wheel and makes a beautiful sculpture. But God created out of nothing. There were no materials that God had at his, in his hands when he created. If there were, you'd beg, beg the question, where did those materials come from? Who created those? No, it was just God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He created out of nothing. Now, you say, that's, that's a great truth. But what are the implications of that? If God created out of nothing, what does that mean for your life? I think there's two very powerful implications. Number one has implications on stewardship. What do I mean by that? If God created out of nothing then everything belongs to him. That nothing had a beginning outside of him. And that means that everything belongs to him. There's nothing that, that belongs to you ultimately, that we are simply stewards or managers of everything that God owns and that belongs to him. And that means there's no spiritual, non-spiritual divide in the world or, or what we would call maybe sacred versus secular, that there's no compartmentalization of what belongs to God and what belongs to us, and yet we can fall into that. I tithe my 10% to the church, or I give my 10%, or I give my whatever it may be to the kingdom, to mission, but the other 80 to 90% belongs to me. There's no such divide, right? that everything belongs to to God. Let me give you an example of this with your career or your work. Your career, your work belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. God created the world, and as we're going to see later in Genesis 1, he created the world, then he created you and gave you gifts to take care of his world. So this drastically changes the question of those of you who are about to graduate college and take a job. You see, the question coming out of college to take a job is not, how can I use my gifts to make as much money as possible and to have a, as, as successful as a career as possible? No, the question becomes, how do I use the gifts and abilities God has given me to take care of and cultivate his world for his glory? Right, so God creating out of nothing has huge implications on stewardship. But second, it has huge implications on sin and evil. If God created out of nothing, then sin and evil can only be a perversion of what is good. Remember, God, there was not some cosmic battle going on between good and evil when God created. Evil didn't exist. Evil doesn't enter the picture until Genesis 3. Got Genesis 1 and 2 or creation. It's good. We'll see that next week. That means that, that, that sin and evil are a perversion of what is good. 
Take sexual immorality, for example. Adultery, pornography, fornication. All of those are, are just perversions of something that is good. God created sex. And he created it good to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. And yet I experience over and over, whether it's in premarital counseling or conversations, the, what I'd call the demonization of, say, sex or, or things in this world, that we demonize things that are actually good, but they've been perverted. I mean, premarital counseling, I deal with couples that come, maybe that grew up in the church and heard the message growing up in church that sex is bad, and then now suddenly they're getting married and they're having to rework their mindset that, wow, this is actually a good thing for us to engage in. Or a couple that comes through premarital that, that weren't raised in the church and had a very promiscuous past and all kinds of involvement that suddenly come to Christ and are getting married and go, now, I don't know how to view it now. Right, if God created out of nothing, then sin and evil is a perversion of good. And we don't demonize things in our world that are good, that need to be reclaimed. Or take another example. Take, take work as an example. What's the general view of work in our world? Well, can I make enough money quickly enough so I can retire and not have to return to the miserable grind on Monday morning, right? Or how can I, how can I make enough money to just stop working? And there, there's an implicit demonization of work in our world that it's, it's, it's bad, it's a necessary evil. I mean, if I polled this congregation, I guarantee we'd be well, well, well north of 50%, the number of people that are just, not thrilled about going to work on Monday morning, right? Whether it's toxic office environments, abusive management, profit-only driven companies, right? All of those are a perversion of what is good. Work is good. We're going to see that early on here. And so when you understand God created out of nothing, then you don't demonize things that are actually good. And we work towards reclaiming what is good for the glory of God, for his design, his purpose. How does God's creation of the world produce surprising hope? First, he created out of nothing. But second, but second, God created order out of chaos. Look at verse two. The earth, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And there's two phrases in this verse that are critical to understand. The first one is this without form and void. Those are two words that mean one single concept, and that is that the earth had no structure, no form that it was empty, that it was chaos, not chaos in the sense of evil, but God was just at the beginning of his creative work. The second phrase, the Spirit of God was hovering. That word hovering, it appears again in Deuteronomy 32, when it says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters or hovers over its young. Right, the same word is used there, describing an eagle that is stirring its young ones to fly. That speaks of intimate, personal contact. 
Now, what does this mean? What are the implications of God creating order out of chaos? I think first it's this, that when God created, and what we see in chapter one, it was not impersonal, nor was it at a distance, right? Deism would say that God is the divine watchmaker, that God you know, created the world and then let it unwind according to natural causes. What we read here with God hovering, that intimate word, is that God was like an artist over the formless earth, creating a masterpiece, personally involved. Second, we learn from verse two and the rest of chapter one that God moves from chaos to order, from empty to full, from formless to form. That is how God moves. Jeremiah chapter four uses this without form and void, the exact phrase. Jeremiah uses it again in chapter four. In Jeremiah four, when he says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. Now this is really important to understand. Jeremiah four is about Israel in the midst of their sin and idolatry. They have made a mess of things. And the entirety of Jeremiah four speaks in terms of desolation, of darkness, it speaks of without form in void. What does that teach us? That God uses that same phrase that he used at creation, he uses now in Jeremiah 4 on the heels of Israel's sin and idolatry, means this. God moves from chaos to order. Sin moves from order to chaos. God's movement is always from chaos to order. Sin's movement is always from order to chaos. God's movement is always from, from darkness to light. Sin's movement is always from light to darkness. We see this in the life of Christ. When you see early on things coming unraveled, which we'll get to in Genesis 3, when this beautiful, structured world that was without form and void. By the end of chapter one, it's this beautiful structured world. And then in Genesis three, you start to see it unravel. God quickly says that this chaos that now sin is causing is not gonna prevail. Why? Because he promises in Genesis three to send someone to recreate and to bring beauty and order once again. And that's Jesus Christ. You look at the life of Christ in the gospel. And scene after scene, where Jesus goes, you see disorder going to order. You see chaos going to order. Think about the wedding, right, that Jesus shows up, shows up at. That's a wedding that was about to go bad, and Jesus brought order to it. Or you think about the, the demoniac, that man that was just crazy, possessed by a demon. Nobody could subdue him. And after Jesus heals him, he's in his right mind, and he's clothed and he's at peace, right? Chaos to order. Or you think about Jesus calming the storm with his disciples on the boat. This chaotic storm turns to very peaceful, orderly situation. That's what you see in Jesus, with Jesus through the gospels, except for one brief moment, we see just the opposite happening. 
from the moment that Jesus is arrested, beaten, flogged, tried, hung to the moment of his death, just the opposite begins to happen. Order starts to descend rapidly into chaos. You have an innocent man beaten. You have an innocent man being falsely accused. You've got injustice beginning to seemingly prevail. You have him hanging on the cross, bloodied. His followers are running away. Peter has already disowned him. It is utter chaos. And then the scriptures say that when Jesus breathed his last, there was an earthquake and darkness came over the land. You see the reversal. The world seems to be descending back into chaos. Why? Because Jesus Christ was absorbing all of the chaos and the sin and the rebellion of the world on his shoulders so that three days later, he could rise and usher in a new world of light and beauty and order. God's movement is always from chaos to order. Ultimately, that gets accomplished at the cross. Now, what does this mean? What's it mean for you in the midst of your chaotic, disorderly circumstances? We enter a new year, and there's great hope. You know, we all talk about, I'm so glad, for some of you, you're saying, I'm so glad that the door on 2019 is closed, right? And I am so happy for what 2020 can bring. Some of you had a great 2019. But generally speaking, there is disorder, there is chaos in our lives, and a, and a new year doesn't just kind of flip the switch. What does this mean for you? That God moves from chaos to order in the midst of your own chaos and disorder in your life? Well, it depends. It depends because your story has one of two trajectories. The story of your life has one of two trajectories. Let me explain that with an illustration. If you've ever hiked in a cave, and if you haven't, put on your imagination, okay? If you've ever hiked in a cave, one of two things is true. You are either hiking into the cave or you're hiking out of the cave. If you're hiking into the cave, you start at the mouth of the cave with light. But the deeper you walk into the cave, the darker it gets until the end of your trip ultimately will land in utter darkness inside the cave. Or you are walking out of the cave, which means you start in darkness, but as you move towards the mouth of the cave, it gets lighter and lighter and your story or your journey or your trip ultimately will end in light. Let me just say this very bluntly and as simply as I can put it. If you are in Christ, the trajectory of your life is hiking out of the cave from darkness into light. 
if you are not in Christ, you are hiking into the cave. And your trajectory is from light or darkness into deeper darkness. In Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, if you attach yourself to him, you are moving into light, you're moving out of chaos, and you can be promised that the end of your story will be light, it will be order, and it will be beauty. When you put your trust in Christ, if you are not in Christ, when you put your trust in Christ, and this is a good description of conversion, your trajectory turns around immediately. Now, what do I mean by that? That does not mean that when you trust Christ for the first time that all your hard circumstances go away. No, it means that the the trajectory of your life turns around, that while you were hiking deeper into the cave with an ultimate destination of darkness, now suddenly you have turned around and you are moving out of the cave into light and into order and into beauty. And so God's movement from chaos to order promises you, if you're in Christ, that your story, as bad as it may seem right now, will end up in light, in order, and beauty. How does God's creation of the world produce surprising hope? God created out of nothing. He created order out of chaos. And finally, God created by his word. Look at verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke the world into existence. Nothing existed. God spoke and something existed. There's great commentary on this verse three in the New Testament. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This is referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. Colossians 1, 15 to 16. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Here it is. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation, which means that God spoke the world into existence by his incarnate word. God spoke your life into existence by his incarnate word. And God speaks your new life into existence by his incarnate word. He recreates you by his word. Romans 4, 17 says, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now this is, beautifully described, beautifully illustrated in two amazing chapters in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God speaks into this new creation 
this being recreated, this new life, when he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There's a promise. And then one chapter later, God sends Ezekiel out into this valley. And in this valley, there's a bunch of dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I want you to speak my word to these bones. And so Ezekiel speaks the word of God to these bones. And there's a rattling sound. The bones start rattling. They start coming together. Then there's tendons and then there's skin. But then God says to Ezekiel, but there's no breath. There's no breath in these bones. Ezekiel, I want you to speak to the breath. I want you to prophesy to the breath. And so Ezekiel speaks the word of God to these bones. And it says they begin to breathe and have life. If you're in Christ, that happened to you. If you're in Christ, that valley of dry bones, that, that vivid depiction of death to life happened to you. And if you're not in Christ, when you respond to God's call, that's what happens to you. Right? If you when we talk about salvation, if you're in Christ, you are not the product of some self-help initiative. You're not the product of a, a moral improvement program. You're not the product of seven principles to a better life. You are the product of the God of the universe speaking your dead heart to life. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. That's what's happened to you when God speaks you into existence. I think waking up to an alarm clock is probably a pretty apt description of what it looks like to respond to God's call and to be raised from death to life, to be called into existence, to be given new life. Think about an alarm clock. Your alarm clock can go off. You can hear it and you can pop out of bed immediately. Not me, but maybe some of you. You can hear it, pop out of bed and be awake and jump into your day. Sometimes that's what salvation and conversion looks like. It did for the apostle Paul. He's on the Damascus road. He gets blinded by a sudden light. And Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul and called him. Like that. You've got John Wesley, well-known pastor, who talks about just being strangely warmed in his heart. He, he had a alarm clock went off and he jumped out of bed experience. But for others, that's not the experience. Because what's the other way you can wake up to an alarm clock? You hit snooze. And then when you hit snooze, you exist in this half awake, half asleep mode for nine minutes. That turns into sometimes 18 minutes and then 27 minutes. And so you begin setting your alarm 18 minutes early because you know you're gonna hit snooze twice. All right, I'll stop there. I'm probably revealing too much about my own life. Uh, but you exist in that half asleep, half awake mode. Here's the deal though. Here's the point. At some point, you quit hitting snooze and you wake up. 
right? Sometimes conversion is a, a process and it's slower. But the point is, you're either awake or you're asleep. When you're awake, two things are true. Number one, you didn't wake yourself up. You responded to a call by God who woke you up and gave you a brand new heart and a new life. You're a new creation. You're not an improved creation. You're brand new, and you didn't do that. That's number one if you're awake. Number two, if you're awake, you're not asleep anymore. You're not even sleepwalking. You're no longer walking into the cave, into deeper and deeper darkness, even if you're unaware of it. If you're awake, you are walking out of the cave. The journey of your life, the big picture journey of your life, not day to day, but the big picture journey is you are walking out of the cave. Which means even if your life right now is very dark and the circumstances are really, really hard and you don't see a whole lot of life, if you're awake in Christ, you are moving out of the cave. And God will move you out of the cave into his glorious light because Jesus Christ plunged into darkness for you so that you would never have to experience the utter darkness that he experienced separated from his father in the grave forever. And he came out of the grave, burst into glorious life in a new body, ushering in a new world with a promise to you that when you attach yourself to him, the same thing will happen to you. That's why you're headed out of the cave and you are moving towards light. And that's the hope that creation brings, that God created out of nothing, that God moves and creates from chaos into order, and that God creates by his powerful word. Let's pray.